So we'll continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I was informed this week that, that the, the Pew Bibles are not all uniform. And so I normally say if you're using a Pew Bible, it's this page. Well, probably won't say that anymore until we all get the same Bibles in the pews. But we will be in Mark chapter 6. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Mark 6. And if, if you don't have a Bible, look at the one in front of you and you can, you can find it uh, while, while I'm introducing uh, our message today. But, but we're going to continue in our, in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. Well, if, if, if you read the New Testament, the, gospel, the four gospel accounts, as, as you read them and as, as you familiarize yourself um, with the gospels and, and the rest of the New Testament, you should recognize a clear theme that runs throughout. And that theme is simply this, that, that followers of Christ follow Christ. That's a simple theme. Followers of Christ follow Christ. And what I mean is that Jesus is set forth as the one who, who sets, who establishes uh, this, this line of teaching, these commands that are to be followed. So we're to follow Christ by following his teachings and, and the things that he commands us to do. But also Jesus is set forth as the one whose very life sets a pattern that's to be followed. So not just his teaching and his commands, but, but his life itself, it, it sets a pattern or a trajectory that's to be followed. For example, uh, Paul in, in Philippians 2 talks about the humility of the incarnation. So the fact that Jesus took on flesh and, and humbled himself is something that should, should be followed by the, the Christians there in Philippi. Or, or the sacrificial love that was put on display when, when Jesus laid down his life is to be modeled by Christians towards other Christians and then towards others. Or the, the way that he endured shame and suffering is to be embraced. You know, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he, he taught that, but then he exemplified that in his life. And so on and so forth. We could, we could keep going. But, but our passage this morning is going to emphasize the theme of disciples who follow the way of the Master. They're, they're following the example set by Jesus. Now, if you haven't been with us, so far in Mark's gospel, we, we've become well acquainted with the ministry and the experiences of Jesus as he's been teaching, as he's been performing miracles, as he's been going around Galilee, and he crossed the sea and went to the, um, across to a Gentile land. Um, and so we've seen his authority on display. We, we've witnessed miraculous healings over and over again. We, we've heard him teaching, and we've, we've actually seen people, many, receive him with faith. So they've approached him, and, and they've had faith, and they've accepted him and received him. We've also seen, witnessed, that, that there's an, a, a sense of opposition and rejection that's growing. Th- those two have been going side by side. And what we'll see this morning is that both in our, in our story, there's, there's disciples, and then there's John the Baptist, and both the disciples and John the Baptist are going to experience what Jesus has experienced. The disciples and John the Baptist are going to join the pattern that has been and will continue to be set by Jesus. So they're going to follow the way of the Master in two different ways. Now, now we will see the, the account of the sinning of the twelve in the first part of the passage, and then the death of John the Baptist, their experiences are very different and almost seem disconnected. Um, the experience, the, the disciples are going to share in the ministry. Jesus is going to commission them to do the things that, very things he's been doing. And then John's going to, going to suffer, experience suffering, and he's, he's going to be beheaded. He's going to be killed. And he's, going, he's an example of, of what sometimes is required to be paid by followers of Christ, which we know uh, a suffering that Jesus himself would eventually endure. But all those, these experiences are different between the disciples and John the Baptist, both the disciples and John the Baptist, I think the reason that Mark has put these together is both of these examples exemplify what it means, what it looks like to follow the example set by Jesus. So that, that's what we're going to look at, the example that, that both of these passages 
um, paint, the picture that they paint. So if, you're, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to begin reading in Mark 6, verse 7. So that's where we left off last, last time. So I'm going to read verse 7 through verse 30. So Mark, 7, or Mark 6, verses 7 through 30. Beginning of verse 7. And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So, verse 12, they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, that's Herod, when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21, but, it, when an opportunity, but an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask, for me, ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you even up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for, for what should I ask? And her mother said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste, with haste to the king, and she asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oath and his, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and laid it in the tomb. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So, so that's the passage. You see, there's two really distinct stories. There's the sinning of the twelve, and then there's this, this account of the beheading of John the Baptist. And so those are two sections that, that I've broken the, the text into. And, and as I mentioned, both, both, both passages paint two different aspects of what it means to follow the way of the Master. So verses 7 through 13, we'll see the way of representation, the, the representative ministry that the disciples carry out. So, so we'll see that following Jesus means continuing his ministry as his representatives. That's, that's what the disciples do. They, Jesus sends them to do basically what he has been doing all along. So Jesus commissions them. That's, that's verses 7 through 13. And then second, verses 14 through 30, we'll see the way of suffering. Following Jesus means being willing to continue in the pattern of suffering that's been set. Now, now certainly the death of John doesn't guarantee that every Christian will be martyred. Okay, we, we can testify to that. There, there are 
especially in, in our context, there are many, many Christians who are not martyred, but it does mean, what I'll argue is that followers of Christ, because they are followers of Christ, are often met with rejection and suffering. And so as we work through this, this passage, the, these two sections, let me encourage you, if, if you're a follower of Christ, to, to think along these two lines, to be asking yourself these two questions. First to say, how am I living as a representative of Christ? So how am I following the example set by the disciples? And then second, does the potential of rejection and suffering affect the way that I follow Christ? So how am I like the disciples, and how does, how does the thought of, of rejection or suffering affect the way that I follow Christ? And what I'm going to argue is that we are the primary means by which the ministry of Christ is continued in this world, and I'm going to argue that, that the prospect of suffering should influence our walk with Christ, but not in the way that most people think. It shouldn't discourage us from following Christ, but rather should encourage us. So that's what we'll look. So let's look first, verses 7 through 13, the way of, of representation, the sending of the twelve, verses 7 through 13. And so as it begins, for the first time in Mark, we see Jesus is, is kind of turning the reins over to the disciples. He's, he's, he's putting the ball in, in their hands. Now, Mark, if you've been with us throughout, throughout this gospel, there have been several times where Mark records the disciples were with Jesus when he did this, or disciples were, were following him. And we recognize that, that as Jesus is carrying out this ministry, he's doing so, and he's training the disciples. They were seeing the power of Jesus at work, so they're, they're observing what's going on, but they're also being prepared to, to carry on the ministry of Jesus when he goes. So he's training them, and, and here in verse 7, he actually sends them out in order to join him in his ministry. And In fact, he sends them to do exactly what he had called them to do. If you're with us in, in the beginning of Mark, when, when there's the passage that, that, that Jesus appoints the twelve, Mark 3.14 says that he appointed the twelve so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So that's exactly what, what's being played out before our eyes here in, in chapter 6. That's what Jesus is doing. He's sending them out. So notice, notice how they are his representatives. That, that's, that's the purpose for their sending. Verse 7, he sends them out with, with his own authority. So it says, Jesus gave them authority. Now, now that in itself is, is a pretty incredible statement. He doesn't pray to the Father. Father, would you grant them authority? Rather, Jesus says, I give you authority. That, that's, the, that's, that's who Jesus is. He simply gives it. And later we'll see that that authority is what's used to cast out demons. And so Jesus is a man with authority, and he's sending out his disciples with his same authority. If, if you've ever read through the book of Acts, that theme runs over and over. So uh, the, there's the occasion where uh, someone wants money. So the apostles are walking in and they say, give, give us money. And, and Peter says, I, I can't give you money, but what I do, what I can give you, I give you in the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Over and over they say in the name of Jesus, the power is in the name of Jesus. And so the, the apostles later and here, they're, they're dependent on the authority that's given by Jesus. Jesus is equipping them with their own authority. But, but second, notice also verses eight and nine, he sends them out dependent. They are dependent missionaries. They're, they're only allowed to take the bare essentials, the bare necessities. There's, there's nothing extra. There's, there's no, no extravagance to what they're to take. Jesus says, no food, no money, no change of clothes. Okay, that, that, that's him saying, you are, you are going to be totally dependent on what is provided for you. You're going to be dependent. They, they were going, as, as, they were, as they endeavored to carry out this mission, they, they couldn't sustain themselves. So they can't have extra money. Oh, when things get tough, I'm going to go down to the hotel and, and we're going to stay there for a while. Or I'm hungry, no one's provided us food, Let, let's, let's go in our sack and have, have our extra uh, bread and fish. 
There's none of that. No food, no money, no extra clothes. They're going to be dependent on what God provides for the hospitality that is shown to them. One, one commentator writes, the specific terms of the commission demanded of the disciples a rigorous commitment to total dependence upon God for food and shelter. While the minimum requirements for the journey, staff and sandals were permitted, they were to take nothing else. And I think the reason Jesus is doing that, he's sending them out knowing they're dependent on others to meet their needs. Namely, fundamentally, they're dependent on God to meet their needs. And then also he sends them out as his representatives, and, and he prepares them to be both received and rejected. Verses 10 and 11. So he says, when you're received, go in that house and stay there till you're, till you're done in that town. In other words, he's telling them, don't, don't go there. And if, you, if, if someone offers you a home and you say, oh, that smells funny. Oh, that looks a little unkept. Yeah, I'm going to keep seeing if someone else will show me, show, me, show me hospitality. He says, when someone offers you, you go there and you stay there because that is God's means of provision for you. If you continue ministering in the city and, and a richer person befriends you and they have a, a mansion that you can go to, don't do that. Stay where you first went. Receive the hospitality. Don't, don't leave to, to go to a better place, to, to upgrade. Rather, stay where it's provided for you. So, so be received, but also, when you, don't, when you aren't accepted, don't be discouraged, don't, don't quit, don't, don't, don't just throw in the towel, but, but shake off your, the dust on your sandals. This would have been a form of, of judgment, right? You, you've rejected our message, so, so we're moving on, okay? Our hands are clean, in a sense, is what they'll say, and he'd go to another town. Move on, keep moving on. Be, be prepared to be received, and also to be rejected. And then lastly, if, if you've noticed, in all of these things, in all, in all of these things, they were to minister as, as extensions of Jesus, of his own ministry. There's so much overlap between what they're to do and what Jesus has been doing. So we see the message. Look there in verse 12. What, what was the message they proclaimed? Mark records, they proclaimed that people should repent. That's the exact thing that when, when Jesus steps on the scene in Mark 1, that's what he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God has arrived. So they're, they're preaching the same message that repentance, the kingdom's at hand. But also, verse 13, their message is, a, is accompanied by miracles. So this authority that, that, they're, that they're carrying out this, this ministry in, this authority, they actually, this, this authority actually worked. So they, they healed sick people and diseased people, and then they, they cast out demons which is exactly what Jesus has been doing up to this point. And so Jesus sends them out, and as he does, his ministry is expanding. So, so it's almost as if, as if there's 12 mini-Jesuses. Right? There, there was one, and all the crowds are coming, but now that 12 mini-Jesuses are out doing same works, proclaiming same message. And so this is a message that, that the kingdom has arrived in Galilee, and it's advancing through the ministry of these 12 appointed ones. And so that, that's the sending out of the twelve. And, and as, we, as we ask ourselves, well, how does this apply to us? I, I, would, I would simply argue that from these verses, the application, it's pretty seamless. Yeah, there's some differences between the, the, these disciples and us. They were on a particular mission, and they had particular power. But, but there's a lot of overlap in, in the transition in terms of application. It's, it's pretty seamless. In a similar way, we, like the disciples, are those who are charged with continuing the ministry of Jesus here and now. That's we, as his disciples, are charged with continuing the ministry of Jesus. We continue the ministry as his representatives. So that's the example that's being set for us. We minister upon the authority of another. If you're a follower of Christ, as, as you go out and you proclaim the gospel, as you try and minister to those in need, you, you do so upon the authority of another. 
Right? If you're building your, your claims and your, your calls to obedience on your own authority, you're, you're not carrying out the mission of Christ. The message is not our own. The truths that we stand upon are not our own. But just because they're not our own doesn't mean that we can't proclaim the message or stand upon the truths with conviction because we minister from the authority that's been given to us by Christ himself. And so we, we carry out, we minister upon the authority of Christ just like these disciples did. We minister dependently, just like the disciples did. Like disciples, we, in and of ourselves, we have nothing to contribute to the mission. I think one of the reasons that, that, that Jesus says you can't take anything is because they would, they, would, they would be tempted to look to themselves as, okay, we're okay, we, we've got safety, we've got security, I, I got extra money, I've got extra food. But Jesus says you, you, can, you can bring nothing because you're going to be totally dependent. And, and likewise for us, all that we bring to the mission is, is the lack. Or, or the want, the insufficiency. That's what we bring, and we are met with everything else. God brings everything else. His power is made perfect, not in our sufficiency, not in our strength, but in our weakness, in our, in our insufficiency. His glory is revealed not through our glory, but through our clay vessels. That, that's, that's, the, that's the irony of we, we are ministers of another, and we're, we're dependent, we're weak. And when we cease recognizing our dependence upon God and and carrying out our mission as his followers, we cease carrying out his mission. And so a question to ask is, is how am I, how are you living as a representative of Christ? So think about your daily life. You're you're weak this week. Think about it. How are you going to be a representative for Christ, a representative of Christ? Maybe at your workplace, maybe among your neighbors, maybe among your children at home. How are you representing Christ with his message and his mission in this church body? How are you representing Christ to one another, to other members here? Are you taking part in the ministry that God has called all of his followers to? We are one of the primary ways that the ministry of Christ continues on this earth. We as followers of Christ. And so if we're not carrying out the ministry, if we're not living as representatives of Christ, then, then his, his ministry is not being carried out. And so let me just encourage you, follower of Christ, act upon the authority of Christ and depend upon the provision of God, and we will constitute a community-changing, a world-changing force for his sake. It's his authority, it's his power. So that's the first thing. But, but second application I'll just mention, mention briefly is that, that comes from what Jesus prohibited the disciples from taking with him. And I, just, I mentioned this a second ago, but it seems that Jesus knew the temptation of his disciples to minister from their pride or from their sufficiency. And so when he prohibits them from taking the basic needs, he's actually being kind because he's saying, the things that you would look to instead of me, I'm going to remove from you. And so I'd simply ask, what, what are some obstacles in, in representing Christ? What are some obstacles to our ministry as followers of Christ? I won't go into detail, but, but I think it's important for us to just ask ourselves, what, what are things that will obstruct me from following Christ faithfully in, in, my, in my life now? I mean, the three obstacles of, of this passage are self-sufficiency, abundance of possessions, and discouragement in the face of rejection. So maybe those are things that, that would be obstacles for you. Maybe it's something else. Let me just encourage you as a follower of Christ to be aware of your tendency to grow complacent and to be hindered by obstacles. And so, so identify, what, what are things that are preventing me from faithfully following Christ? Well, secondly, let's, let's move to our second section, the way of suffering, verses 14 through 30. See verses 14 through 30, where we're, we're introduced to the story of John the Baptist. So, so Mark transitions, we have the sinning of the twelve, and he, he enters this, this whole section 
of, of this story of John the Baptist. So the transition is that the 12 are out and the popularity of Jesus is, is rising because now there's 12 people doing all these things that only one had done before. And so Mark says, wow, his popularity is rising and, and it catches the attention of King Herod. And so because of this reputation and the ministry of the disciples, no one knows to what to make of them. What, where do these people come from? Who, who's doing all this? Why, how is this happening here in, here in our towns? And so some, Mark records, some say it's John the Baptist who's been raised, who's been resurrected. Others will say, what's well, Elijah? And others say, well, it's like a prophet of old. And we see that this is a, a recurring theme in Mark. Nobody knows the true identity of Jesus. Everybody says, no, 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 that's it. No, that's not it. And that's where, where as, as readers, we say it's clear who he is. He's the Son of God, the promised one, the Messiah. But, but here they're all wrong. But it says in verse 16, notice, Herod decides it must be John the Baptist. We don't know the reason why Herod decides it, but he says, it's John. I know it's John that this is happening. And then the mention of Herod and his infatuation with John gives Mark the opportunity to then take an aside and, and fill us in as readers on what exactly happened between King Herod and John the Baptist. And so he goes on this aside. And so if you look down, look down at verse 30, what we read, the last verse we read, verse 30 of chapter 6, Mark is, is the conclusion of this passage where he says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So that's the conclusion to what we just read about the sinning of the twelve. And what happens between verses 17 all the way to 29 is an aside. Do you see that? Do you see how the flow is interrupted and there's this sandwiched account of what happens with John? And so why does, why does, why does Mark feel the need to, to, to insert this? Does he just want to clarify what happened to John the Baptist? What, what's his thinking and, th- and this, this is why I think that Mark does this, because I think he intentionally sandwiches this story, because if you think about the, the, the discussion of the sinning of the twelve, it's, it's centered around, as, as we've talked about, being representatives, following the example of Christ. And so Mark decides, well, here's another follower of Christ whose story I should, should insert here, because this one, John the Baptist, also serves as an example of a disciple. But rather than, than being his representatives in, in this, this successful ministry, quote-unquote successful, John is going to serve, serve as a representative of, of a disciple who pays the ultimate price for following Christ, and that is giving up his life. And so it's as if Mark is recounting the sinning of the twelve, all that happened, and all the, uh, the miracles and, and the success they're having, and he thinks, well, now wait a minute, just so everyone I'm writing to realizes that, that the power to do miracles do not, does not grant immunity from, from suffering and death, let me remind them that this world is filled with villainous people in high and low places who will try and rub out the messengers of God in their message. Let me remind them that it's not all flowers and roses and success and miracles and, and preaching the message, but, but sometimes there, there's, there's a, a cost of, of our own lives. And so I think that's Mark inserts the, the story of John here to, to show the example, the pattern that's set for followers of Christ. And so in verse 17, beginning verse 17, he, he tells the events that led up to the execution and so just briefly, there's a woman named Herodias. Herodias is married to Herod. She, she marries into the name, and she holds a grudge against John the Baptist, and she wanted him killed, Mark says. So, so she hates them. Mark says that this grudge is because John had, had publicly decried and protested her marriage. He says, well, that's not fair. Why, why would he do that? Well, Herodias, who was the wife of King Herod, verse 14, okay, she wasn't always the wife of King Herod. Before that, she was the wife of King Herod's brother. So you have Philip and Herod who are brothers. Herodias is married to Philip, and then she decides, I don't want to be married to Philip. I want to be married to Herod. We don't know why. Maybe she's power hungry. Maybe this is a, a step up on the ladder. But she does that. And John, over here, prophet, is saying, 
that's unlawful. You can't do that. And so John is objecting to the marriage. And his objection to, to Herod's marriage is because he married his brother's wife, which is a forbidden union in the Old Testament. So marriage to a husband's brother was only allowed under very specific circumstances, and that is if brother A dies, has no kids, no offspring, then brother B is required to marry wife to, to continue the line. And John says, I still see Philip alive. You're, you were married to him, now you're not, and you're married to his brother. That is not allowed. And so he's taking a stand against the marriage. And so because of this opposition, because he disapproved, she wants to kill him. She hates him. How dare you tell me who I can and can't marry? And so notice in verse 20, she wants him dead, but she couldn't have him put to death. King Herod, her, her new husband, stood in her way. Mark says that because King Herod feared John, he recognized that he was a righteous and a holy man. So there's this infatuation with John from King Herod. And so because King Herod feared John, okay, he, he would not put him to death. He, he imprisoned him and said, okay, I'll keep him in prison. Maybe that'll pacify Herodias. But I'm not going to kill him because, actually, I like listening to him. I, I have no idea what he's saying, Mark says, but, but I, I love listening to him. And so he wouldn't kill him, but he puts him in jail. And so then in verses 21 through 29, that's, that's John's lot, okay? He's just in prison. But then in verse 20 through 29, we see events, circumstances that led to Herodias, the wife, getting her wish. So these are events that, that lead to the killing of John. So Herod throws himself a birthday party. And he invites all the powerful people of Galilee. So notice there in verse 21, the nobles, the military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. So this is the king's party. So anyone who's anyone is going to be invited to the king's party. And it's his birthday party. And so everyone that's important has gathered. And then Mark says that the daughter of Herodias, okay, so we assume this is a daughter from, from, the, from the marriage with Philip, we assume. So here's, here's the daughter of Herodias, which would have been the stepdaughter of Herod. She comes in and she danced. She dances, and, and then Mark says that she pleased Herod and his guests. Now, there's, there's actually a lot of disagreement about the identity of this daughter. Was it, there's names thrown around. Well, who was it? Is she unnamed? How old is she, and, and what's the nature of this dance? There, there's lots of confusion. I would simply say, first of all, this is not a young girl. So if you observe the context, and, and later, you remember that this head, headless or this head on a platter is brought to this girl. This is not going to be a 10-year-old girl who, who this has done. That, this is uh, most likely a teenager, a young adult daughter, because of just the context of all that's happening. But then second, and which I think is, is important, is this is not this dance. It's not a, a, a typical ballet dance recital with lots of tutus and, and clapping and parents and, and cameras. This seems most likely, it would be most fitting with, with this context and the reputation of the Herodians. This dynasty inherited himself, his reputation, this, the nature of this party and the nature of this dance that pleased Herod and his friends would have been provocative and sensual, a, a, not, a, not a good thing. And so that's what's going on. It's not, it's, I think that helps us understand what, what exactly is going on here. And so King Herod is watching his stepdaughter dance, and he's pleased, and he says, ask me whatever you want. We assume he's, he's, he's inebriated at this point. Yeah, whatever you want. Ask me, and I'll give it to you. And so then she knows, okay, here's my chance. Let me go ask my mom. So she runs out and she asks, well, mom, what should I ask him? Look at, look at this opportunity I have. And, and she says, well, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Of all the things, she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And so daughter rushes back and tells the king. And so we assume he, he's inebriated when, when he makes that statement. And, and this brings him to his senses really quickly when she says, 
I want the head of John the Baptist. Because verse 26 says, the king was exceedingly sorry. He realizes what has happened. Wait a minute. What, what have I just done? But notice how Mark continues verse 26. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her, that is his stepdaughter. And so immediately he gets an executioner, a, a, a soldier, with orders to bring John's head. And, and this soldier goes and he brings John's head. So John's in prison. Someone shows up, says, King's orders. You're, this is your time. You're done. And then brings the head on a platter and gives it to the girl in front, we assume, here in front of this party. Right? So this is the nature of the party, where a head on a platter comes and is presented. And so just like that, the great prophet, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, he's, he's executed. His life is ended. And so we see the true character of Herod. As, as, as I read this, at first glance it may seem, wow, what an honorable man. He wanted to keep his word to the girl. And that's how it seems, but, but as you step away and realize what's going on, he's, he's anything but honorable. In fact, one commentator writes, Herod is revealed to be an immoral, vacillating, and pathetic ruler who takes the easy way out to save face rather than standing up for what is right. I know I said that. I know I said that, that I would give you anything, but I'm not going to kill an, an innocent man. I'm not going to do that. He doesn't do that. He takes the easy way out. He kills him. So, so this, this commentator argues that he is the antithesis of John. So we have John who stands up, who, who stands firm on, on what he believes and speaks the truth even at the risk of his own life. And you have Herod who vacillates between, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Okay, no, 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 I'm not killing him. Okay, yeah, I will. And so you have these two, these contrasting figures. And so Mark records that John's disciples then come and take John's headless body and give him an honorable burial. And that's when we get to verse 30 and Mark transitions back to the Jesus and disciples story. And he says that the apostles returned from their sending Remember that we first saw, and they told Jesus all that they had done and taught. And so Mark concludes the passage. And so, so as we look at this, it's a fascinating story. But, but let me close with, with two final applications from, from that second section, from the, the beheading, the execution of, of John. And, and these, are, these are two applications. First, notice the nature of opposition that, that John faced. The nature of opposition. Notice he hadn't done much in terms of going out his way to create enemies. Okay, he had said, it's unlawful, you shouldn't be married to him. Maybe he said it a lot and over and over, but, but it didn't seem that he was going out of his way to make enemies. I, I was reminded of the, the harsh words they said to the Pharisees at the beginning, who warned you of the judgment to come. But, but here, when it comes to Herod and his wife, he simply refused to approve of an unlawful marriage. And we see that his wife, which we don't know her motivation, perhaps she's power hungry, why she, why she married the brother of Philip, but she's offended that she's not allowed to marry who she wanted to. She can't, she can't marry the king. And she's so angry. I mean, think of how angry you have to be to say, kill him. I hate him. I, I want him dead. That, that's that's, how, that's her, her response to him saying, you shouldn't be married to that guy. And so John's reward for speaking against the king, for saying that's an unlawful marriage, is it's a death wish. That's his reward. Okay, your, your, your head is removed from you. And so a few thoughts. I mean, hopefully you're, you're thinking, you're, maybe your minds are running all over the place now thinking about us and how we apply this here. But, but just a few thoughts for our current situation. First, it's, it's not hard to recognize the same nature or a similar nature of opposition present in our current culture, is it? I mean, there, there's a sense of just opposition. Now, now I will say that, that unfortunately, there are, there are many Christians or so-called Christians who incite opposition, who incite anger, who are unloving and, and not representatives. So, so I'm not talking about that. 
But a lot of times, there, there's just this, this undescribed anger and animosity. You mean you believe that? I can't believe you. And it's just, they, they hate Christians, and they hate Christian truth. And so that's just the nature, and it's not, it's not unusual now in our culture. And as I said, we have to be careful. We have to be sensitive and gentle and loving. Okay, I have to emphasize that. But we shouldn't be surprised when opposition seems to come out of the blue, unprovoked. And so in many ways, we can relate to John's situation. But then, then second, let me just remind you that, that as Christians, or that Christians historically have been in the position that, that we seem to be heading in our culture, but, but where Christians all over the world are now. Christians have, have always been the, the vast minority in their culture. That's always been the case, or most of the time, mostly always. I won't say always. But, so, so we shouldn't be surprised when we head ourselves, find ourselves as Christians heading toward the minority. We're simply joining brothers and sisters all over the world. The thing about, we, we talk about North Korea or Pakistan or Somalia, right? Th- those Christians don't enjoy many of the freedoms that we as Christians enjoy here. Now, we should be thankful for the nation that we live in and for a lot of reasons. But as we seem to be moving away towards the minority, towards those who are rejected and opposed, we're simply joining the many faithful saints who have gone before us. And we shouldn't be surprised by the nature of opposition. We ought not to create it, but we ought not to expect avoiding it. And then the last application, and then, then we're done. Application two, I, w- I want to just emphasize, highlight the triumph of defeat. The triumph of defeat. Because it's easy to think, oh, well, poor John the Baptist. He lost his life. He didn't fulfill his mission. He was snuffed out. His life ended too soon. But the reality, what, what the scriptures teach, it, teach, the equation is that John losing his life actually meant that he gained it, that, that he actually triumphed in his death, that, that it was, that it was a, a, a victory death. So as his head is being separated from his body, he is being celebrated in heaven as, as one who is victorious. And it goes back to the pattern. Like I said, the pattern that's been set for Christians by Christ himself. John, in this sense, is a precursor to Jesus. Jesus would be persecuted. He would be executed. He would be opposed. And we ought not be afraid of following the pattern that he set for us or think that it's strange. And so John the Baptist, through his death, actually proves that he has life and he receives his reward. And so the history of the church, our our family tree, is filled with weak, seemingly insignificant martyrs whose lives were, were snuffed out, who, whose lives ended early, who were prevented from fulfilling their mission. And these men and women, brothers and sisters, were anything but weak and insignificant. These men triumphed through their suffering. They triumphed through the suffering. Their, Tertullian, the church father, says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so it's at times of great persecution that God grows the church because they see, wait a minute, those people are serious they're not running. They're not fleeing. Actually, they, they, they are fulfilling their purpose. Or another quote that I came across that I'll mention is, is the philosopher Kierkegaard said that the tyrant dies and his rule ends. The martyr dies and his rule begins. You see the contrast between the world and, and what we are called to as Christians. And so we ought not to be afraid to lose our lives. I mean, that, that's one application. We ought not be afraid to lose our lives for the cause of Christ. I read that it's true that most of us will not be martyred. I recognize that, but it's also true that, that if you're a Christian here, you have been called to die. So let me encourage you as a Christian to follow the example of Christ our Lord and, and lay down your life. Let me lay down my life for the sake of 
our mission. And so let me close with Mark 9.35. Later in this gospel, Jesus will say, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. So let let us be people who are not afraid to lose our lives for the sake of finding it. Let's pray.